Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We review the Chinese Grand Prix and talk Mercedes domination and Ferrari team orders. Formula One's much-heralded 1,000th Grand Prix yielded a 1-2 victory for Mercedes in the Chinese Grand Prix, with Lewis Hamilton leading Valtteri Bottas to victory and Sebastian Vettel third on a disappointing day for Ferrari and in some areas contentious as well. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me to review the Chinese Grand Prix is Stuart Codling. Now, are you fully, fully behind these 1,000th celebrations? Were you enjoying all the things that were going on at the circuit? I didn't, I didn't. I felt that there could have been a little bit more done. I really did enjoy the sight of Damon Hill driving around in his dad's Lotus 49, the the beautiful car, fantastic, and without wishing to use uh, to overuse a much overused word, iconic gold leaf livery, really was a sight to behold. But I, I kind of felt that maybe a little bit more could have been done in terms of the on-track razzmatazz. Maybe they felt that the... Uh, local crowd weren't quite ready to engage in a thousand races of F1 history but when you look at the much greater degree of engagement that the Chinese Grand Prix has now compared with you know when when we first 
started going. I remember my first one was 08 and there were more people standing outside the gate trying to sell you hooky watches than there were actually inside paying to watch the race. Nowadays, you've got Team LH China occupying half the grandstand. So I, I think China is ready to taste a bit more of Formula One's history. Yeah, it's a real bustle and hustle done that the wrong way around around the uh, the outside of the track as, as you go in but uh, yeah I think when it comes to the thousand stuff I'd like to have seen a parade of great cars but I imagine that geographical limitations will have made that a bit difficult because yeah geographical logistical all, all, exactly, the, all exactly. the mess of getting them here and um, uh, I'm sure it would have been a nightmare of paperwork just to get the 49 through now I do have to say Codders I want to caution you to pay attention during this podcast because I do know there's a, a highly important other sporting fixture going on that, you, that might lead you to checking your phone a few times yeah if, if you see me checking twitter throughout feel free to throw your keyboard at me because it is of course the, a crunch game between london irish versus hartbury at the madeski stadium today currently seven all according to the thing that i'm not compulsively checking every few seconds excellent so if we hear a cheer we know what's uh, we know what's going on. i'm not sure if one person can really do a convincing cheer that will be a yell it will be a yell I'll, I'll, I'll just try not to curse if we drop any more points. Excellent. Well, we have been suitably fed and watered. We've just been, uh, we're in our hotel in Jiading, so we're not actually in, in Shanghai itso- itself. We're a little bit uh, outside Shanghai and quite close to the circuit. Some interesting menu choices, weren't there, in the uh, the translated version of the menu? Uh, yeah, yeah. Let's just say that um, I often feel that Chuck Berry might have inspired the name of this place with his song, My Jiading Ling, but... Uh... Oh dear, oh dear. Did you... Uh... Did you go for chiropractic off the menu? That was one of the... Tra- I mean, this ultimately reflects our abysmal language skills and that we rely on uh, automatic translations of, on the menu. Uh, yeah, yeah. And what, what an amazing language Chinese is that it confounds even the, the might of computers to translate accurately. There's been some fantastic translations on the menu. There's some things that actually kind of sound like cryptic uh, crossword clues. Beijing green onion explodes fat sheep. Being yes, particular. I don't I, I actually try that. I, I, I was trying to wonder what on earth it actually was, even with the aid of a picture. Soiled dishes powder was another one. Soiled dishes powder kind of looked like some sort of braised onion dish. <laughs> uh, but despite the translations, the food there is excellent. It's, uh, it's a very, very, uh, very nice restaurant. We used Re- it last year. Yeah, really nice people. They're slightly bemused by our presence, but um, very, very sweet, I thought bemused and amused which is a standard reaction to you (laughs) yes well certainly when i ask questions about uh sebastian vessel's facial fuzz in the press conference excellent well we've uh we've got a nice uh nice sensible surroundings we're not in one of the pokey hotels this time although i owing to a a slight power supply problem within the uh over by the desk i've had to relocate to sit on my bed to do this yeah i think luxuriating on the sofa I, i think was it was it denny holm who said you know where you are with a holiday inn uh, you, you know, you've, even if you've got soap in your eyes uh, when you're in the shower, you kind of know where the towel's going to be. And this this is actually a really pleasant hotel. And pre- presumably, given the fact that we're staying here, not massively expensive. So uh, it's, it's worked out really well. Yeah, the area around uh, in Jardine around the circuit has developed massively in the past uh, decade plus, really changed. Well, it's actually here, isn't it? Which is the thing. You know, when we first were coming to this Grand Prix, there was, the, this, there was nothing for miles around. Now there's skyscrapers. Yeah, it's really changed dramatically. So, well, let's get on with the race. As we said, Lewis Hamilton led Valtteri Bottas for a Mercedes 1-2. Now, I guess the 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 big thing here in terms of the, the pattern for the season is that after Bahrain, Ferrari slipped back, Mercedes back on top. Yeah, it was very interesting sort of... A, 
not the most interesting race, but from a weekend point of view, when we first were analysing the the pace on Friday, it seemed like it was really evenly matched between Ferrari and Mercedes. Well, both single lap pace and, and long run pace was, was very, very similar. Yeah, it's, it seemed to be shaping up to be quite an intriguing event. But as it happened, the race, as Valtteri Bottas said, was decided at the start. We kind of saw Ferrari melt away into the background and muddle their strategy and, and actually get mugged by Red Bull. Yeah, exactly. And well, in fact, Verstappen could well have been ahead of the Ferraris in qualifying, but for the rather amusing uh, traffic jam situation that, uh, that arose. I'm always surprised it doesn't happen more often, actually. Yeah, I, was it, it was Sebastian Vettel who said that he, he went to Red Bull after that because it was quite controversial. And I was expecting him to say, I went to apologise. But then he said, no, but, but they admitted it was their fault. It was kind of like one of those insurance claims, wasn't it? You know, I, I, I ran over the pedestrian, he admitted it was his fault and that he'd been knocked down before. Well, of course, it's because they'd all backed up. They all want to start the lap as late as possible. So ideally, you want to cross the line half a second before the chequered flag so you've got the, the perfect conditions. But you have this queue. They're all going quite slowly because yeah. it's a slow... Uh, you need to be slow on your your outlap. And yeah, you ended up with uh, with Verstappen. He got passed by Vettel because Vettel suddenly got the hurry up. And so he went past Verstappen, kind of against the gentleman's agreement. But as Verstappen said, well, I didn't get a hurry up, but Vettel did. So I actually, he wasn't really blaming Vettel. He kind of understood it. I think he was probably a little bit He was nuts by the outcome rather exactly, than the methodology. Yeah, exactly. So Vettel went past and then we ended up with yeah Verstappen, Gasly and the two Hasses didn't actually start a lap. So yeah. four of the 10 cars running didn't didn't. Gets the start, which is extraordinary. And Verstappen was ahead on first run times. He was in third, just ahead of Vettel and Leclerc. So it could have changed things dramatically on the grid. Massively. And a scenario like that in in Q3, when you've got eight people trying to do exactly the same thing, it's not going to end well for some of them. Uh, And and for me, kind of the most, I hesitate to say amusing, but actually in hindsight, you've got to say it's quite funny, was the team radio from Haas, where they said, you've got 20 seconds, 50, five seconds. Uh, You know, they they just got it wrong. Yeah, ultimately it didn't make much difference to their position. I mean, they said that they... They strategically they had to be right at the back to have any chance of beating Renault, and actually they they kind of traded ninth and tenth for ninth and tenth, so it wasn't a great problem. But even so, you don't want to miss out on your qualifying lap. So that was uh, that was unfortunate. But yeah, a, an interesting qualifying, and of course we had a, a few little interesting storylines in the in the team battles. In that you had Bottas beating Hamilton to pole by a very small margin. He he looked the more impressive driver, but Hamilton worked away through the weekend to get into a, a position where he could where he could challenge him. And in fact, because Hamilton didn't improve on his second flying lap, he he lost about 0.318 in the last sector. Everyone on the second run was a little bit slower in the last sector, which I think was down to a, a more, more intense headwind. Yeah. But he was much more down than than he'd been. And and so had he had he had he gone as slow in the last sector relative to his previous run time as Bottas did, because Bottas was about seven hundredths off his his best and Vettel would have been then Hamilton, I should say, would have been ahead. So it was an interesting battle. And it, it was fascinating watching. He, he wasn't quite comfortable, was he? And I think uh, you asked him about that after qualifying, didn't you? Where he was with the car. Yeah, he, because, you know, you, Ed, had been trackside, turned one, two, three during FP3, if memory serves. Yep. You went down there, yeah. And, and you'd got a really interesting sequence of pictures showing just how much that Mercedes was not biting in uh, it, it was kind of drifting away from the apex. For Hamilton. Uh, uh, yeah, for Hamilton at, at the exit. And and so 
you know, because we work cooperatively. Uh, I, I asked him about this in, in the press conference and he said he was just trying different lines and it was quite tricky. He, he was finding it a bit of a struggle to get tyre temperatures balanced across both axles. Which is incredibly difficult here because you've got that very long back straight and then you've got a hairpin and one corner and then a long run to the first corner. So it's, it's relatively easy to keep the rears okay, but keeping the rears sensible and heating the fronts, particularly with that long first right hand yeah well you don't use the brakes basically yeah. do you? you just you just let the aero and the engine braking and the the natural uh lateral forces do all the work and the but, front left tire yeah and the front left tire is that. really being cane throughout that and throughout the kind of the the left right 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 that leads on to the the back straight is also really punishing but then so, some of the other tires have a much easier ride so it is more difficult to to keep it balanced we, we saw uh some drivers complaining about overheating saying it was it was tricky they were getting overheating other drivers in the race saying especially on the harder tires that um you know the williams for example once they got into blue flag hell george russell said that his tire temperatures went away and never came back no matter how hard he pushed which you know we can only presume is a factor of you know once once you're going slow enough, the tires start to slide, and you're just you're just chipping away at the surface. You're not really generating any heat in them. And it wasn't helped by the fact that the the track temperature wasn't especially high in the race, and it was it was creeping down by a few a few degrees as we're going on, which obviously yeah. makes it makes it, it a little it bit. It was harder. colder today. You you could tell. Well, I could tell even before I opened the curtains this morning that it was not going to be as nice a day because it was just much more dim, and it it was colder cloudier uh windier and, and much more gray than than any of the preceding days we'd had we, we even thought it might rain at one point i did quite enjoy qualifying uh charles leclerc's reaction over the radio to his own lap in which he just for some seconds gave himself a good telling off admirable beration do you reckon he locks himself in the cupboard under the stairs and does that very very probably well i actually really like this in drivers because there are some drivers who will blame anyone than anyone except themselves anything any any factor they can blame whereas Leclerc knew that he'd not really done what he needed to do he didn't have the easiest weekend he struggled a bit he lost some running on Friday as well while they were running some cooling system checks in FP2 but he chipped away at it and he got really close to Vettel and I think that was what frustrated him the most in that he knew he could have beaten Vettel having not looked very likely to prior to that so I think that's what led to the, the lengthy uh, the, the lengthy uh, abuse he gave himself yeah and I suppose you know he he is very well aware that Vettel is going to get preferential treatment unless he Charles Leclerc actually gets ahead remains ahead uh, at all times and we even saw in that opening phase of the race uh, Ferrari shilly-shallying over the issue of whether to swap them and you know you could say that actually cost them that maybe right away from the start they should have said you know shall get out of the way let Sebastian have a go well that's a that's a big topic we'll we'll definitely get into I mean obviously at the start of the race the main thing was Lewis Hamilton from second on the grid jumping ahead of Valtteri Bottas um, not actually a bad initial start from Bottas but then it went a little bit awry for him that is actually quite a fascinating subject and something that Valtteri returned to again and again in the the many post-race media engagements. And he said he's never never had it happen to him before at any circuit. And just as he crossed the white line, uh, the, the start-finish line, uh, as he left for the formation lap, he got wheel spin and he kind of thought, oh, this isn't good. Uh, so he thought, well, maybe it'll be better once I've got some temperature in the tyres. Uh, and then as it happened, 
it didn't get any better. So his wheels spun up uh, as he passed it, and, and that just cost him the vital couple of meters to Hamilton. Uh, I, I suppose the thing we ought to address is why did that happen to him and not to anyone else? And the answer is because he's closest to it and he is traveling axiomatically traveling the slowest as he crosses it and is putting the same amount of energy through cold tires so they are much more likely to spin it's, it's interesting though because i did run into uh, ben edwards the the commentator who works for channel four one of the british broadcasts they show highlights and he mentioned that uh, dc david coulthard who's his co-commentator had noticed that on the formation lap lewis hamilton laid down a lot of uh, a lot of rubber so, so DC obviously he's, he's very good at noting these sorts of things. Picks out that perhaps perhaps Lewis's preparation was better. Perhaps he thought, well, actually, we need to do this. And you know, if, although he's a little bit further back from the white line, he's put, he will still have been laying down a bit of rubber there. So may, maybe that made the difference. Yeah. Experienced campaigner. Exactly, exactly. Yes, uh, very much so. So we had Bottas falling behind, and that kind of decided the race between them. In fact, it was interesting. So having a look at the relative pace, and once um, things had settled down, uh, Hamilton was actually pulling away reasonably briskly. It was about uh, it was it looked about like four tenths a lap to me, but obviously I don't take as copious <laughs> notes as you because I have to do the post race report that um, one files almost before the drivers are out of the cars. Yeah, I do the one which is the work of many, many, many spreadsheets. But the uh, yeah, well, from lap three to lap twenty. Uh, Hamilton was 0.248 seconds per lap on average quicker, so yeah. he built a lead of 5.516 yeah, seconds. I wasn't and, too far wrong. Well, there were there were points. Obviously, yeah. the, the the rate at which it grows ebbs and flows a little bit. So yeah, he 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 had the edge on Bottas. Uh, heard quite a lot of people sort of saying, "Oh, this just shows Bottas' strong start to the season has sort of faded away." But I don't entirely agree with that. I think you know, okay, Hamilton was the quicker driver in in the race conditions. Certainly, once he got ahead, but I think I think Bottas is doing a decent job. I thought Bottas was good in the second and third stints, yeah. and uh, he knew by then that there was nothing he could do, so there was no advantage exactly. for him in sitting in his teammate's dirty air. He may as well just lay back two or three seconds. But what he didn't do is what was happening at the back end of the last season: have tire troubles and fall back from, yes. from second place. So yeah, I, I think absolutely fine from Bottas. Okay, wasn't quite Lewis Hamilton's level in the race, but. It's Lewis Hamilton, so there's no disgrace. I don't think he needs to be at Lewis Hamilton's level to do the right job that Mercedes needs him to. Yes. So some people might say that Nico Rosberg wasn't, but um, I'm I'm not saying I was one of those. <laughs> I don't think there's any disgrace in not being quite the the, the, the same level as, as Hamilton. No, no, no disgrace at all because he's, he's an operator. He's exactly, an all time, an all time great. No question, actually quite appropriate. I suppose he won the thousandth Grand Prix. Of course, Alan Prost waved the chequered flag. That was uh, I've, I've digressed a bit there, but but yeah. So so at the start. It, the thing that, as a consequence of Bottas' start, is that Vettel ended up with a little bit of a run. And he was in a slightly unfortunate position. And obviously, he was third on the grid. So he was in, in Bottas's rank. So on the on the left side of the track as the drivers look at it, going up towards the first corner. So he had a Bottas in front of him. Hamilton kind of over to the right. And Leclerc, obviously, coming through up against the pit wall. So all he could really do was sort of put peek his car out around the outside in the hope of getting round Bottas, which he which he couldn't do. And that, of course, just left Leclerc with the easiest run through the first long first corner tight on the inside. And then Leclerc's got third place. Yeah, and he veritably scampered through there, didn't he? And I think, you know, if, if you're among the front front runners and you get through there cleanly, then you're kind of in gravy for the rest of the first lap. It's the people behind that are really making a mess of it, especially as they boil down to that hairpin at turn six, which, you know, as has happened at so many Chinese Grand Prix in the past, it came to pass. Exactly. Well, we shall uh, have a look at that incident uh, in the midfield uh, later on. But obviously now we have this situation with while well, the Mercedes drivers are off on, off on their way. I mean, 
basically they had the race won from there. There were a few little complications along the way with with strategy that meant they had to be a bit careful. But ultimately, that was the that was the race won for them. And then we had Leclerc with Vettel behind him. Leclerc didn't drop Vettel. He was getting chivied on the radio. Right, come on, press on. Vettel was obviously on the radio saying, "I'm I'm quick." I mean, I d- it wasn't particularly fractious from either. I don't I don't think there was no. any throwing toys out the pram, as some people might say. There was think, gentle pushback. I think exactly. Any driver would do that in the, in that situation. So you have Vettel saying, "Right, come on, I, I'm I'm quicker here." And the team the team wanted, I think, to let it play out, which I think maybe wasn't a great idea. Um, and it and it took them ten laps to give the order. To yeah, Leclerc, they sat on their hands for too long, really, yeah. didn't they? Let, let's not equivocate. If no, no, just I, th- said I think straight away. well, no, I actually think there's two there's two approaches. You either let them race. Unless there's an extreme situation with one driver holding up the other massively, which wasn't the case here. They were similar-ish pace. Or you say Vettel's quicker, and I think Vettel's underlying pace, despite the fact on the first few laps when he got through, were a bit of a struggle for him. I think his underlying pace was fractured, was a little bit quicker than, than yeah. the clerk in the race. He did, I, I, he either did you say let them race, the race or, that... you, or you say, no, Vettel through earlier. Yeah, I, I feel they fell in between two stools there. That's my problem. I actually don't have a problem with teams using team orders. I just don't like it when they muddy it and this struck me as a little bit of hoping it would sort itself out the way they wanted it to before they intervened which not ideal i got the impression post-race that vettel um underestimated how tricky it would be to make headway once he was in clear air he did say um first few laps in clear air were were difficult once he was out of the close slipstream so like you say you know his underlying pace improved after that but he did look like he was making a meal of it he snatched the front brake into front left brake into the hairpin at one point, which didn't look good. And Leclerc looked like he was ready to shape up to repass him, whether the team liked it or not. We had that great comment that he said, "Well, I think I'm quicker." Just letting you, just letting you know, in case you mind, in case you care. Don't know if you care, but it, I mean, I, I think this is the kind of thing that gets stoked up, and I, it's not a massive row. It's not one driver having a go at the other, but what it is is a fascinating battle for supremacy talked about this after the Bahrain Grand Prix and it's kind of this generational battle you've got the young charger in Leclerc up against the old stager in Vettel and Vettel's got to kind of raise his game and keep hold of that I'm this is my team Satan Leclerc's got to take it off him and I personally think that's I think that's a great dynamic for Ferrari they'll push each other hard but I do think it does require Ferrari to manage it well and I feel they they did fall between two stalls here yeah for, for too long now They've had the position of you know a, a hobbyist in the number two car, and uh, now they've got an ambitious young charger. They need to manage that dynamic very differently. And I think what we saw today was a little bit of inertia that came from uh, years and years of having a compliant number two situation. Yeah, very very much so, and uh, yeah, it, it created some problems. But it obviously the the issue was forced by. Uh, by Verstappen, he was the first of the front runners to stop on on lap seventeen. Now he was just behind those two. He'd he'd fallen about two point seven seconds behind them when they were the other way around. They lost a little bit. They lost. They came down to about two seconds, and then he inched up a little bit more while Vettel was struggling. So he'd managed to kind of latch onto them, and so he's within range of the undercut. So Red Bull, as they often do, forced the issue. Now you could argue Ferrari could have preempted it. I think maybe they could, but I think that's a that's a very that's a very hindsighty kind of kind of thing. That was I, th- I think that was Red Bull forcing issue. So you say, well, maybe you could have done that, but I, I wouldn't jump up and down. So they definitely should have done. But it created the situation whereby, with the undercut, they were vulnerable because the two cars were close. They couldn't double double stack them as Mercedes were able to in the second stops because they had a slightly bigger gap. So they had to do one and the other. So naturally, they pitted Vettel on eighteen. 
and then you have the question of well they should then in the normal run of things appear to look like on 19 which they didn't <clears throat> but this is what created that situation maybe let, we should probably break this down a little bit um in in terms of that first stop was it the right thing to do to pit vettel rather than leclerc at, at that point the the answer to that question has to be yes because otherwise you know that that could have been very bad they could have both you, been you, undercut you, and yeah you risk both of them. Had both of them yeah. so they, they made the right call at that point uh, then I, I just got the feeling that they didn't really know what to do with Leclerc and ended up doing neither. And the strategy they chose for him fell between two stools. He didn't go long enough to do anything challengingly alternative. Um, so all they did was just hanging him out to dry for a few laps. Was the net result, looking at it in hindsight? Well, even at the time, I was uh, I was chatting a message to my colleague Scott Mitchell saying, no, this isn't, this isn't right, they've got to get him in. This isn't going to work because. How do you multitask so much? Oh, I, I, it's. Uh, I, I'm not. I'm not sure they do it successfully, but <laughs> but it, it was interesting. So I had a look at it after the race, and basically, it amounts to Vettel bought uh, not Vettel Leclerc bought a five lap tire offset against Verstappen, who was the guy he was racing, in exchange for quite a lot of time because basically from lap 19 to 21, when they were both running normally, he was 2.5 seconds per lap slower than Verstappen. On the end lap, he lost a further three seconds to Verstappen. So he lost all this time and came out miles behind. So he came out, he was about 11 seconds down when he emerged from the pits at the first time check. And he got a five, a five lap tyre offset, which is, I mean, in an, in an absolute knife edge tyre race, that might, might just be a, enough if you've got one of these crazy races where the car you're chasing, tyres have gone complete, but that almost never happens. Yeah. So. Two and a half seconds a lap, you're never going to get no, no, back no, no, unless exactly, you have exactly. a, 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 some sort of ridiculous race. So. But it, I, think it, I think it was because once they'd made the stop with Vettel, as they had to, no problem with that, they knew more than likely Leclerc was going to lose track position. But for me, they, they threw good money after bad in that they knew they'd lost the track position to Verstappen. But rather than coming out a little bit behind him, they came out way behind him. Yeah, they gave with. It's like, like you say, it's the sunk cost fallacy, and they just sort of chased the bad strategy until it became so obvious that it wasn't going to work that they thought, okay, right, we'll we'll bring him any, anyway. But by that point, he had a mountain to climb in in terms of the amount of time he had to catch up. And but when they eventually made their second stops, which reading between the lines of, of a lot of the post race interviews. A lot of people didn't expect to make. Well, this this was yeah. Red Bull again forcing the issue. Yeah. Ask Christian Horner about this. What was the rationale behind it? Because it was a great move, actually. And he said, "Well, we knew our best chance in this race was if it was a two stopper, and there was always the possibility that a safety car might intervene after, and we have a similar situation to last year." So they basically forced the issue. It did put the cat amongst the pigeons because everyone had to react because Verstappen stopped. So Mercedes would have thought, "Okay, they weren't too worried at that point," but then that triggered Vettel stopping to protect against the undercut and as soon as Vettel stopped he was close enough to be a little bit of a threat to the Mercedes so they did that double stack stop and Hamilton and Bottas came back out ahead and double stack stops we do see them but they're they're they're, they're high pressure things to do they're quite rare and of course the the risk that you uh, run is that something goes wrong with the the first driver in and then that screws both their races and that was something Bottas said he was worried about and he he queried it uh, for more than one reason. Obviously, reason one is that if I'm stuck behind Lewis while there's a, a sticky tyre or something doesn't come off or he cross-threads a wheel nut, that's my race gone as well. Reason two is 
if I do exactly the same thing as Lewis, just after Lewis, there goes all chances I have of winning this race. So is there anything different I can do? And the answer that came back to him was, no, there isn't. So he chivered a little bit. They made him do it. He said after the race that he looked at the data and fair enough, it was the right thing to do. But of course he would say that because, you know, he's a nicely paid driver in a in a very good car, so he's not going to rock the boat. I think it was. There was a little bit of vulnerability to Vettel, so it, it made sense. And all credit to Mercedes for thinking about that, because normally the, the, the double stack is a, a safety car protocol, or sometimes it's there for if there's sudden rainfall and you can't leave both cars out and you've got to get them in, uh, rather than... We do occasionally see it in these scenarios, but that, I mean, ultimately it it was big enough. The gap was, uh, was it 5.7 seconds, something like that, off the top of my head, so that there was enough. That that should be fine, but it, it, there wasn't much margin for error, shall we say, so, uh, no, so it, good it was It was more a factor of getting um, Lewis's spent tyres away and bringing out Valtteri's tyres to be ready to put on his car was a problem because you can change tyres in three or four seconds but then you've got all the other time of getting getting everything moved around do you know Red Bull one of their stops uh, timed one of their corners at 1.5 seconds for wheels wheels on well wheels off wheels on they uh, they are so good fantastic and and having having done that just briefly as an exercise at a uh, a Patronus sponsor day in uh, in Turin pre-season it, it is so hard to locate uh, a wheel uh, on a hub because basically the, the the two are designed to fit kind of like hand and glove. So, well, you actually have to have the the rear wheel, or in our case, which is a heavy enough unit in itself, at exactly the right height as the car comes to a halt. So that when when that the the old wheel comes off, you you aren't just in the right sort of vertical position; you're in the right horizontal position as well. And you basically just push it forward and slip it on it's so hard to do and you have to have it properly aligned so they really are earning their corn we do take the pit stops almost for granted but they're, they're phenomenal you think about the pressure that's there because all those question marks you know they'll all know oh if we mess up lewis's stop even just by a few seconds it could destroy bottas's race so you know all credit to them we've seen teams get those things wrong before but yeah great job from uh from mercedes so that basically meant that any vague threat from from vettel was gone it wasn't a massive threat, but they, they were right to to cover it after Verstappen. Basically, as you said, everyone was thinking, "Oh, this you know, we could go to the end on a one stopper." But Verstappen basically created a, a two stopper. They couldn't afford to uh, to to risk not not doing that. So you had basically the top three set, and of course, Leclerc was left out, and rightly so. I, I think in this point, there was nothing they could do other than run along. There are a few factors at play. They still had half an eye on trying to make him make it to the end on a one stop worth a go didn't work they also felt that having a car up there because he did get ahead of Bottas that Bottas had to pass might hold Bottas up long enough for Vettel to be a factor that didn't happen and if he was to have any chance at this stage having given away all that time before then he needed a big a big offset tyres at the end so he did have a big pace advantage at the end but he was too too far behind because Verstappen had made that stop when Leclerc had closed to about 3.7 seconds behind so it was an early stop but it's a great move by, by Red Bull and it just sort of blew apart any chance of of uh, Leclerc doing it. it got everyone thinking and then yeah closing stages Leclerc charged I think he was about 0.86 faster to the end but fell short he, he never really had a chance no there was too much to do uh, I'm actually quite enjoying Red Bull's new role as the sort of the argent provocateurs of Formula 1 whether they'll sort of perform or, or pursue that sort of 
high risk strategy if they get themselves back into a position of dominance or being much closer to the, the, the leading duo. Who knows? But certainly this point of view where they're slightly on the fringe of, of the leading group, it's quite interesting to see what they do. No, very much so. And uh, and it's worth for them. Ultimately, they wanted to beat at least a Ferrari and they did get one. Ferrari maybe helped them a little bit, but they also created the conditions for that for that to happen. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, this this is why we want Red Bull to be fast enough to be in that title fight consistently, because then you have three teams going at it, which everyone wants to see. And Red Bull operation are really good, yeah. really strong. Uh, they're not afraid to speculate to accumulate. I think is their their motto really. Yeah, very much so. And it's easier when you've got less to lose. That's true, but they uh, they execute it very well. And actually. We should say Max Verstappen a, a really good drive, aside from his uh, brief moment on the formation lap. Uh, yeah, the, I mean, it's it, it's an, it's it's one that flew almost below the radar because the the camera work was quite bizarre. You had to be looking at the timing screen to see how how well he was doing. I, I did feel that the the direction dropped the ball there, but he was always there or thereabouts and threatening. And given the equipment he has at the moment. Uh, I'd say that he did. He maximised the job. Yeah, very, very much so. And we'll, we'll forgive him the spin on the formation lap. Robert Kubica did one as well. So, yeah, exactly. And it must have been on a knife edge out there. Yeah, very much so. When you're struggling to get the, the heat into the tyre. So yeah, so that basically it was there was the story there, the very front of the race. So we had Hamilton, Bottas, Vettel third, Verstappen fourth, Leclerc fifth, and of course the odd man out in that group was Pierre Gasly. Now he's he's having a a bit of a struggle adapting to, to life at Red Bull. Uh, qualified sixth, started sixth, ran sixth, a fairly lonely sixth in the end. He was offset from the others. All the other ones in the top six started on the mediums. Having yeah, he was on the softs. So. He started on the softs. Didn't make much difference in the end, ultimately. But that did put him in a interesting position to just put that final nail into Ferrari's coffin by nicking a point off them at the yeah, end. Yeah, I, I was quite surprised. They, they left him out for quite a long time on the soft tyres. And most of the people who started on softs pitted quite early. Obviously, the, the Haas drivers were the outliers who did it really, really early before the lap was 10 years old. So 10 years, 10, before the race was 10 laps old, rather. But off the top of my head, Gasly stayed out till what, lap 18, 19? He went to lap 19, yeah. So that was after Vettel, Verstappen had come in and, and just before the uh, the Mercedes came in. So he, he was tucked up behind Verstappen for quite a bit of the first stint. And then he kind of just fell off. As well, tucked up behind him is probably a little bit generous. Yeah, he maybe was behind so. him and, and, he, he was behind him, yeah. <laughs> but he, yeah, yeah. He was behind him and then, yeah, just basically just disappeared off into a race of his own, didn't he? He was neither one thing or the other. Um, fair play. You know, he had enough of a gap uh, behind uh, Ricardo to be able to do that and he executed it very well. question is whether anyone else was actually seriously trying to do it at that point. He, he didn't actually set... Um, all purple sectors. It was too green in a purple, so it wasn't even the theoretical uh, fastest lap. He, he he actually probably could have done better. Well, it's one of those things that he um, so basically gave him a, a one well two shots at it. I guess you could have had, but he came in a few laps from home, so it was a penultimate lap was his was his push lap. But I asked him after the race. I said, "Oh, was, was it what was that like? Was it like a qualifying lap?" And he said, "Well, not really. I had the delta out of my dash all the way around." So 
it was a bit more managed, shall we say? I mean, this is my problem with the with the fastest lap situation in that basically you've I think one hundred percent it creates some interest and a talking point, so it's very positive from that perspective, and that did liven up the end of the race. So it's good from that perspective. But the the reality is that you've got a driver who is having a, a tough weekend, and we should say not to be too harsh on him. He's adapting to life at, at Red Bull. He's struggling a little bit with the car. He's, he's got to get that balance between being attacking and not too attacking on entry, and then make sure he's not compromising against it. So there's there's things for him to work on. I'm sure we'll get on top of it. He's a he's a quick driver. But he was able to take that fastest lap point exclusively because he was the weakest driver in the top six teams. And because top three teams, top six drivers. And because they were so far ahead and there was a big gap to Danny Ricciardo in seventh place, his reward was to be able to get fastest lap with by putting in a lap that actually by his own reckoning, wasn't anything remarkable. Yeah, the, any of the drivers ahead of him could have done the same thing, but they they were they they had other fish to fry, as it were, they and were they didn't want, in a race, yeah. and they and they didn't want to risk anything. So I, I suppose that was the only thing he could do at that point. No, well, absolutely correct to do. Yeah. Ge- let, let's be generous. He he's shown an upward trend in performance. Certainly, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I like Gazi. I was impressed with him last year. We we know what he can do, and it's not easy to go into a top team. Fairly esoteric car, the Red Bull, actually, in terms of the way you, you have to drive it. And up against a driver like Max Verstappen, who's a sensationally good driver. Yeah, and knows how to drive the esoteric car. Exactly, yeah. He'll, he'll get there. He'll get there. But, uh, yeah, I'm not a big fan of the point for fastest lap because of you have to be in the top 10 to, to get it and all the caveats of race situations, etc. So, yeah. But, you know, it was something to talk about, which was, which was no bad thing. And uh, as you know, I'm quite agnostic. Actually, I'm not... A- Firstly, agnostic. Ag- agnostic is an absolute, which I just qualified by saying quite agnostic. So it's a kill, in you, kill me now. Um, I, I, I vacillate on it. I, I hated it when it first was announced. I, I came towards quite liking it in Melbourne when it added a bit of spice and zing that I hadn't anticipated to the end of the race, particularly hearing that pain in Lewis's voice when he said, I need that fastest lap. I need that point. I thought, well, maybe it's not such a bad thing. But yeah, this did underwhelm me. Just seeing two green blobs appear uh, next to Gasly's name on, on, on the app. And I just kind of thought, well, you know, you got new tyres. You could at least have gone purple in all of them. That would have impressed me more. <laughs> With, without wishing to um, slip into Shania Twain's boots, it did not. It left me slightly nonplussed. <laughs> That'd be a very different song with um, that, uh, that title. But yeah, so Elite Pagazi did what he needed to do. So that's uh, you know, credit for him for doing that, even if it was a little bit managed. Looking a bit down the order, because Daniel Ricciardo, um, seventh place. This was quite a. I think this was quite important for Renault. They've had a difficult start to the season. We haven't actually seen Renault in qualifying have a kind of proper run, which they did finally in China. The first two weekends were, were difficult. So we had Renault seventh and eighth on the grid. Ricardo ahead of Hulkenberg, of course, and Ricardo has had his struggles adapting to the car. He said he was trying to carry too much speed in and did a bit of work in the Bahrain test and talked about adapting their approach and the way they worked through the weekend. But good for him and Renault to to nail that result. Very important result for their man, for him, because obviously they've got ambitions. They want to be at least the fourth best team. Uh, they got to be season. a better fourth was uh, what Cyril Abitable yeah. said to me when I did an interview with him over over Christmas. Yeah, a, a better fourth, not just kind of an accidental fourth because the team that should have been fourth went uh, into, apparently flirted with the edge of insolvency. Obviously, you know, Daniel has 
highly paid driver, you know, commands a quite a high salary there, needed to deliver a bit of ROI. But but also, you know, they, they clearly have a good car and, and they'd underperformed in qualifying, so they needed to get a result. I suppose the disappointing thing for me is that Hulkenberg retired. It was it was interesting that they split the strategy. They had Hulkenberg stopping early and then we didn't really see how that was going to pan out because about three or four laps later, he, he came to a halt with that alleged MGUK software issue, whatever it was. So uh, potentially robbed of an interesting race because that, that sort of last three or four of the top 10 ended up being quite tightly contested in terms of strategy. And it was quite interesting. Yeah, very much so, very much so. And it's concerning to have another MGUK related uh, related problem. I think the yeah. the very side of the team, the engine side of the team, across the board under under a lot of pressure there. They need to be registering finishes and they they've just not picked up many points. Yeah, and if if, if they break many more of them, then that's gonna mean penalties towards the end of the season, which will compromise their ability to score the points they need to be a better fourth in their case and also in McLaren's case it's very important that they show some progress because they've been struggling yeah exactly a, a difficult weekend for them we should say uh, Sergio Perez a racing point was chasing down well sat behind Daniel Ricciardo putting a little bit of, of pressure on him I, I was impressed with Perez actually because the the racing point it's uh it's a kind of slightly undercooked car at this stage they, they yeah. know that the start of the season is going to be tricky qualified 12th he felt that was a surprise because they didn't think they quite had that pace and he felt that maybe they dealt a bit better with the windy conditions. There was a lot of changeable wind in qualifying and through a lot of the weekend, actually. But it's just typical Perez, mega first lap, got himself up into eighth behind behind Perez and he's picked up a, a, a very good result. It's probably a little bit better than the, than the car promises. Yeah, this is shaping up to be quite an anomalous year for them in that uh, obviously the, the genesis of that car uh, coincided with the team being in massive financial difficulties so um, either it was started late or less work was done on it than could possibly have been done just because they were, they were just trying to retain staff they were trying to prevent a brain drain and well, for Green example, they, Omar were trying to that, stop people leaving they stuck with the 18 suspension and they've got the 18 Mercedes box they had to make that decision early because the, the money hadn't yet started flowing so there were some conservative decisions made that they'll have to carry through the season. Yeah, they are inherently compromised and will continue to be compromised. So really this year is going to be about maximising every opportunity and overperforming where possible. So as you say, Perez overperformed by uh, qualifying 12th, mega first lap to run 8th, and then the strategy worked out for him and he didn't drop the ball. So not a a race of controlled aggression, I would say. He, He was aggressive when he had to be kept his nose clean when people around him and behind him were losing theirs and and, th- and then just kind of stroked it home, didn't uh, lose his head and throw it away while chasing Ricardo. So all in all, a very impressive race by Perez. Yeah, very much. And he had uh, Kimi Raikkonen uh, behind him. In the end, the gap was, was a bit bigger, but, but Kimi was there chasing and actually quite a yeah. well-executed race from Raikkonen. I, I was impressed by Kimi, actually. He raced really well. Um, another... Another long first stint. I think it was. You've you've got your sheets over there. It was one of the longest first stints. Yeah, he went the all longest. the way to lap twenty five before his first stop. Only Kubica went longer, and he doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't 26? really count in that. Yeah, he, he doesn't do it. Yeah, yeah, lap twenty five. So yeah, did Kubica go to twenty six? Yeah, from memory. Yeah, so impressive first stint, and he netted the benefits. Obviously, 
you know, he, he gained track position through doing that, which he subsequently lost through pitting. But then he made the most of his fresh tyres by attacking and passing the cars ahead. And it was that that um, netted him that top 10 finish. And so, yeah, very good, very good race from the hobbyist, the self-confessed <laughs> hobbyist. And actually, it has to be said that the Alpha looked pretty bad when I was watching on, on Saturday. He was having all sorts of trouble with it. Up at up at turn three, like just sometimes it over rotates, sometimes it go white. It was just horrible. It just all over the shop and struggled a little bit in qualifying. You know, we had this the kind of the phantom power loss he thought he had. It was actually just the headwind intensifying, so he he didn't make Q three. I think this is a run of fifty three consecutive Q three appearances that ends going back to Hungary twenty sixteen. So uh, you know, it, ultimately Kimi is there at, at Alpha to be the dependable senior old hand and keep banging in those those results which he has done so far so he's been in the points in all three races which is which is excellent particularly with the fact that in this midfield fight some teams are struggling for consistency and yet Alpha's always been there even though uh, Antonio Giovinazzi had has had all sorts of misfortune yeah. this season uh, I, you've got to feel for him because I, I think this weekend he's kind of been dealt a really, really bad hand. You know, you had the mystery engine installation problem that cost him all of FP1. You then had the car grinding to a halt because uh, Sauber had made the decision not to take the new control electronics for packaging reasons, because it's a different shape, I, I think, was the reason we were given. Uh, and, and it was the control electronics that were the reason for Charles Leclerc's problem in, in Bahrain, and, and that same problem happened to Giovinazzi and that put him on the back foot so uh, we, the we back really, row. on the back row yeah <laughs> we really haven't seen the best of that guy yet so you do have to sympathize yeah and he missed a session in Bahrain he's he had a, a little bit of, of contact and some damage at the start of Australia so you know he's a good driver and he's, he's just had no no chance so far the year. yeah it's going to sap his confidence yeah especially with some of the other rookies uh Getting getting rave reviews and good results, yeah, uh, and, and he's Italian. You know what an appetite for misery <laughs> the Italian press has. Well, there we go. Let's hope they're uh, they're slightly more set on Ferrari. Uh, brings us to the final point, Alexander Albon. Now, obviously, he grabbed some headlines on Saturday with his shunt at the at the final corner. Yeah, epic, epic shunt, and quite an unusual one for for that corner. Usually, you kind of lose it. You, you start to lose it at the entrance. You run a little bit wide and um, then you have to back off and gather it. He seemed to lose it after he'd gone past the apex. Shot wide, seemed to try and keep his foot in. And it was that ju that just spat him off that curb at, a, at an amazing rate of knots. And he broke the car quite comprehensively. One can only imagine the dialogue that ensued with Dr. Helmut Marco, but... Whether or not Marco sent him away with a flea in his ear, he really did perform today. It, it was it was a very, really, really solid performance. He made the best of the strategy. He resisted pressure late on from Grosjean. There was a little bit of luck in that Grosjean had to obey a blue flag to let Leclerc by, and that kind of got him out of jail. But you can't argue that he deserved that place. No, I mean, coming from the back to 10th to is, is not easy. And the Toro Rosso did have good pace, actually. I don't think we... Quite got the headline time, should we say, for the for Toro Rosso. Kvyat should have been in Q3. He made a mistake on his second Q2 lap, didn't get through. Obviously, Albon was was benched for qualifying because his, his car, he has a, basically have a new car. He was in up. bits, yeah. Exactly. Um, we saw Albon do a fantastic long run on the Friday afternoon, which was much quicker than the other midfield runners. So it would have been fascinating had Toro Rosso had a normal weekend to see what 
what they might have done. Could they have could they have fought for Class B honors as we put it? Could they have bothered Renault? Considering what Albon did, which is a very a very good drive, yeah, that they could well have done. But but we should say in the case of Albon, to come back from that is is impressive. You know, he's an he's an attacking driver, that's how he gets his pace. He's happy to lean on the car. But I think as a driver in your third race to come back and do that shows just resilience, I guess, and confidence. Yeah, and for someone who has been through the mill in his junior career, he's been in uh, manufacturer junior teams and been dropped. Um, this dropped is his, by Red Bull. Dropped by Red Bull. He's not the only driver in the Toro Rosso who's been dropped by Red Bull, is he? So uh, very interesting. He took a risk by leaving a fairly secure Formula E berth to come and race in Formula One. So risky strategy on his part. Um, I'm not sure I appreciated the way he wasn't listening to my question in the uh, Thursday presser and misunderstood it and needed Tom Clark's and the compare to kind of read it back to him to give me a proper answer. In fairness... Listen properly, dude. In fairness, as some people listening to this podcast will know, you can be difficult to listen to sometimes. <laughs> Rambling on. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, a, a good job for uh, Alexander Albon. And it was very tight. Obviously, Grosjean, as you said, was 11th. Lance Stroll was a bit frustrated. He felt that Albon being given the undercut on him early on was uh, was decisive and ended up with him down in 12th. Stroll actually generally, I mean, he showed showed good race pace. He just couldn't quite get it together in, in qualifying. It was three Q1 exits he's had this year. He needs to, to kind of work yeah. on that. But... Story of his career, really, isn't it? Well, Let's qualify yeah, yeah. better. Yeah, he has to. But actually, once once into the race, he does a good job. Always makes up places at the start. So, you know, there's there's a, there's a driver in there, and I hope he has the. Well, he certainly got the opportunity, and I hope he has the application and mindset and approach to really make the most of what he's got. Do you feel that it's kind of that combat situation that sort of causes him to switch on and be able to extract the most from himself in a way that he can't? In qualifying, when he's got a, you know, a less full road in front of him, it's hard to say. There's any number of reasons. That's certainly possibly one of them. And it's a different challenge: a race versus versus qualifying. It could be in qualifying, you know, that certain drivers are very good at reading conditions and picking up because that's a a huge thing actually. Picking up the grip as it evolves and the track changes from minute to minute. The the level these drivers are operating at, and they're right on the edge of edge of grip. So that's probably an area. And yet. We've seen some wet qualifying sessions where he's been sensational. Yes. Monza yeah, in his Monza. first year, for example. And last year at Monza, actually, when it was all about nailing the slipstream, he managed to get a not very good Williams into, into Q3 by driving well and nailing the slipstreams and everything. So he can do it at times. And I, I'd, I'd like to see that that qualifying uh, that qualifying form form come because then he'd, he'd be racking up the, the points. And as the, as the racing point car improves, hopefully he'll, he'll be able to. Uh, so what else do we have? Yeah, Kevin Magnussen struggled a bit again. Tire attempts were a problem for for Haas, so they had a, uh, a not especially competitive race. And ahead of yeah, Carlos Sainz. Well, we've alluded to this earlier, but obviously there was a bit of a, a McLaren wipeout, as it were, at, at the start, courtesy of uh, Daniel Kvyat. Yeah, yeah, wipeout not featuring Paul Daniels. Yes, uh, Kvyat kind of. It's a tricky one because Kvyat feels that he was hard done by, but. Um, at the end of the day, he was the one who had the twitch that in the middle of the corner that he had to quell, and that in effect bounced him off Carlos Sainz and into Lando Norris. Now, Kvyat and his team boss say that Norris went off the track and came rocketing back onto it. 
he did have two wheels off. He had his, he, you know, he had his under tray on the curb, and he did come back onto the circuit, but he didn't do it in a violent way. So the test here is which driver was wholly or predominantly to blame. You have to say it is if you're being exceedingly uh, generous to Kvyat's. It's 60-40, Kvyat Norris. I'd say it was more kind of 70-30. What was Norris supposed to do? Just drive off onto the grass and wait for everyone to go past? Yeah, I, th- I think it was ultimately Kvyat's fault. Well, the, the only question you could ask is, you know, first lap, we know it's difficult conditions for tyre warm-up. Little wobble. Is that such a crime? I mean, ultimately, I think the outcomes played a part in that. And although there's always this idea that outcomes shouldn't factor in at all, it, it in reality, it does and it has to sometimes. So I think... Yeah, I mean, it wasn't malicious or anything. It wasn't especially stupid. It was just, I think, one of those things. And he got a drive-through penalty. No, fair enough. Uh, I, I wouldn't have minded if there wasn't one. It was just done as well. Mistake, but those mistakes happen in those situations. So. I think he does need to be brought to heel a little bit because it's not the first time in his career that he's been a bit of a missile on the first lap. And uh, my understanding is that you know he, he's got a second chance and if he's going to exhibit all the same kind of aberrant behaviors that caused him to be fired in the first place then he's not going to be around for very long i suppose uh, the the get out for him this season is that red bull don't have easy accessibility to someone in their young driver pool to replace him but you know what helmet marco's like once he's lost faith in a the driver then it's you're fired so you know it, it might just come to a situation where they decide they just want someone else, not necessarily within the family. Possibly. I mean, I think uh, that that one is kind of a one-off incident for this season. I think he's had some bad luck this year, Kvyat. He has been he has been performing well. The the, only, the bigger concern I've got with Kvyat is at the start of 2017, he was having a strong start to the season in terms of pace, but then had some bad luck. And then he kind of got into a bit of a downward spiral. And I hope he avoids that because there's been all sorts of little problems like in Bahrain in qualifying when they, they basically called out the wrong tyre set number and they sent him out on used tyres in Q2. You know, that's that's not his fault. It's a, it's an unfortunate... Yeah, it's just an operational shunt, someone, isn't someone it? Someone said tyre set five rather than four, which, you know, it, it does happen once in a while. It shouldn't, but that's uh, that's kind of ruined his qualifying. So, Kvyat's a quick driver, and I hope he's got got it together to be able to, to make the most of this, this chance because I think, he's, I think there's a real driver in there, and we have seen that at times. And, yeah... I think it's been a been a, a strong start, but it's certainly been eventful for the Toro Rosso drivers. That's a, that weekend, we should say. But of course, that that ruined things for for McLaren. Carlos Sainz fourteenth, uh, Lando Norris classified eighteenth. They retired towards the end just to save some some mileage. In fact, they did the same with uh, with Kvyat and Sainz. Spoke to after the race, and he was just like, "Well, I've, I've just not had a chance this season. He's had things go wrong. MGUK failure in Australia, yeah, fire after, in Australia after a good yeah. start because uh, he." Had massive, he'd had traffic problems in in qualifying in Australia in the form of actually Robert Kubica who was touring in in the last sector. So that was just unfortunate for Science. Drove really well in Bahrain, but had the contact with Verstappen that ruined his race, and then and then this here again. So yeah, uh, I think Carlos is feeling he can't can't buy a break right now. Yeah, for, he's he's been quite he's taken it quite impressively though. Just yep. his demeanour, uh, I found, has been very positive you know some drivers who are on a bit of a downer and can't catch a break they that that comes across in their demeanor at all times you remember you used to sort of talk to mark weber you know you'd say how you know how are you and he'd sort of just give you this open palm gesture as if to say my life is awful uh and and 
Carlos isn't like that at all. I think, you know, he, he knows he's got it. He, he knows he's a good driver. He's just waiting for that opportunity to show it. And they seem to be quite impressed with the race pace he showed after having to stop for a new wing. Yeah, you can see actually in Carlos Sainz some of his uh, his father in there. And Carlos Sainz does hang around. He's, he's an intelligent guy, an interesting guy to talk to. Real, uh, I mean, a, a great a great rally driver, but also just uh, a guy who understands racing and, well, motorsport and how it works in competition, the driver's mindset. So he'll have given a great grounding to Carlos in 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 Carlos Junior in terms in terms of what to, what to do and he you could have just given him a different name to avoid confusion. Well, that's that's very true. Yeah, it would have, would have helped. But uh, of course, that's what you need to get to the point. We need to get to the point where Junior is Carlos Sainz and we start calling Carlos Sainz Carlos Sainz Senior. That's when uh, that's when the the generational change happens. But Carlos, of course, is still excelling in things like the Dakar Rally. So yes, he is. Yeah, he's, he's still active. Carlos Senior, of course, you see. More confusion. Carlos Senior. Going to have to think, Saudi Arabia, that thing's happening next year, isn't it? Yeah, Dakar's, Dakar's moving, isn't it? Yeah. But, I mean, you would say that's bizarre to have the Dakar Rally there, but it's a lot closer to... Yeah, anywhere but Dakar. A lot closer to its original uh, location than uh, than South America is. But uh, anyway, I thought we'd go on to the Dakar Rally. Well, let's come back to the front. What are our conclusions as Stuart Codling checks the rugby score is it good news 33-7 I think that's a bonus point win excellent congratulations although we're only uh, we're only 43 minutes in so we're about about to kiss goodbye to the first half but uh, I feel slightly relieved so the great thing is that any rugby fans listening when they listen to this podcast down the line who know there's been some terrible turnaround in the second half We'll they're going to they're gonna, they, enjoy well, your joy. Yeah, because fir- firstly, they, they're going to think, why is that fool supporting that uh, underperforming team that haven't done anything useful for about 10 years? Uh, and, but who knows? Who knows? Well, in conclusion, then, what are, what are our conclusions from this race? I mean, my first one is that I think this has kind of confirmed to me that this pattern we've seen with. Ferrari being ahead in testing, which they were in, in the second test, everyone's evaluations had, had them there. I think what we've seen now is Mercedes were basically four days behind in testing because their proper car didn't come out till the second test. Mm, they fair. then, based on what they learned from testing, got to Australia with a much but with a better understanding of the car and they knew the kind of set of directions, nailed it there while Ferrari struggled, and then went to Bahrain where Ferrari was suddenly had that lead again. And Mercedes struggled. And I was wondering, well, is, is this kind of Australia the anomaly? And Bahrain is back to normal. But I think what we've seen here is actually, no, the Mercedes the Mercedes has the advantage. I think they realised in Bahrain they got the drag levels wrong. They made a setup error. I think that was Mercedes underperforming in Bahrain. And in fact, if you look at their gaps to other teams, they were. And I think this is probably our, our kind of best guess. You know, th- th- this is the competitive order. Mercedes does have the edge. Yeah, I, I would say the conclusion I've drawn is is very similar to that, which is that for, just on a on a broader level, Ferrari are eminently capable of of designing and building a really quick car. Uh, they're they're innovative. They think of clever things to stuff it with, and and certainly they're they're on a level plane with Mercedes on that front. Where I feel Mercedes has the advantage is, is that they are more detail oriented and they are better at executing, um, better at executing races, better at all the little details that enable them to put together a race winning performance that enables them to find an edge over a team that has more or less equal equipment. And, and that's what we're seeing. Yeah, there's probably some truth to that. I think you're, you're absolutely right. It'd be interesting to see what happens when we get to Baku. Long straights there could help Ferrari. 
but there's also a lot of uh, tight, slow corners there. So kind of every, every race you build up, you get more data and you kind of build up a more more accurate model. Plus, of course, you've got the, the development war going on. We know Ferrari has got the advantage on the straight. Certainly that, that continued here. So, yeah, I mean, they need to, to kind of regroup and Ferrari really really get working to, to develop the car and a little bit of a distraction what was going on with with the, the way they ran the race i don't think it was perfect i don't really have a problem with uh with them using two models just use them decisively and you know it, at this very top level those things will make the difference and mercedes by and large have been pretty good on this i think they 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 actually did a similar thing at russia in russia last year when they they kind of told Bottas they wouldn't use team orders because they didn't really want to and they hoped it wouldn't be a factor. And then suddenly a slightly odd situation arose in the race where they had to do it. And that confused Bottas. And I think they'd just been better off saying to him at the start, yeah, we might have to. We'll try not to, but that might happen. And then you don't have a driver who's, who's baffled. So I think it's down to the way Ferrari manages it, ultimately. Yeah, it's a different situation for them. All I can say is roll on Baku because you, you have to think that for... Uh, you know, a, a circuit that has that phenomenally long straight and which rewards straight line speed, surely that that must be, uh, if not quite an open goal, so certainly a, a goal that's ajar if it's possible for such a thing to happen. Yeah, I think after throwing away Bahrain, Ferrari will will be needing a win. Otherwise, yeah, Mercedes keep going. And of course, it's the first time uh, since 1992 that a team has had three consecutive one-twos off the start of the season. Yeah, and... In very very different circumstances, you know, you, you look back at 1992, uh, the Williams had the active suspension, uh, the the FW14 had benefited. It had been a tricky car in 91, a little bit unreliable, so they'd sorted that. And with the addition of the active suspension, it really was an unbeatable package in the hands of Nigel Mansell, who had the the bravery to drive through the the lack of feel that, that car had on the limit, and he was winning races by you know one or two laps. It was it was massive dominance. We're not seeing that here. Oh, Lewis said there was a little bit of luck involved, and maybe maybe he was right. I think we're we're a lot closer than we were then. Yeah, it, it's small swings will make a difference and that that's the thing when you look at qualifying Ferrari was three tenths down well if Mercedes does a tenth and a half worse job and Ferrari does a tenth and a half better which is perfectly possible suddenly it's turned around you've always got to look at those gaps rather than just the the raw position so still uh still some hope in this championship fight but yeah Ferrari is going to have to regroup well thanks very much for your input Stuart Codling we're going to get back to finishing off our, our various things we have to write before heading back to Europe do check out autosport.com loads of reaction from the from the Chinese Grand Prix and all the big stories in the world of Formula 1 and motorsport on there and our plus subscriber area for a small subscription you can read the world's best motorsport writers you'll also be able to see our driver ratings from the Chinese Grand Prix there and pass judgment on whether you think they are correct do check out sister titles f1 racing magazine out monthly motorsport.com and motorsport news out every wednesday and if you fancy a flutter download the pit stop betting app thanks for joining us we'll be back soon with another autosport podcast Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now is the perfect time to upgrade your old socks to Grip6 Modern Wool Socks. Grip6 socks are the most comfortable all-season socks ever. They are made in the USA with American wool, and they come with a lifetime guarantee. And they're so comfortable in any season. They're light. They stretch. They breathe, they wick moisture. That means when you get home at the end of the day, your feet are dry and feel great. Don't take my word for it. Go look at the customer reviews on Grip6.com and you'll know people truly love these socks. Check them out today. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply